from a slightly different version, but you can still follow along. I'm going to say where it's from. It's from 1 Peter 4, verse 1 to 11. Christ suffered in his body, so prepare yourself for, to think the same way Christ did. Do this because whoever suffers in their body is finished with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires. Instead, they live to do what God wants. You have to spend enough, enough time in the past doing what ungodly people choose to do. You live a wild life. You longed for evil things. You got drunk. You went to wild parties. You worshipped statues of gods, which the Lord hates. Ungodly people are surprised that you no longer join in them in what they do. They want to join. They want you to join them in their wild and wasteful living. So they say bad things about you, but they will have to explain their actions to God. He is ready. He's ready to judge those who are alive and dead. That is why the good news was preached to even people who are now dead. It was preached to them for two reasons. It was preached so that their bodies might be judged. This, is, this judgment is made by human standards. But the good news is that the good news was also preached that their spirits might live. The life, this life comes by the means of God's power. The end of all things is near, so be watchful and control yourselves. Then you may pray. Most of all, love one another deeply. Love erases many sins by forgiving them. Welcome others into your homes without complaining. God's gifts of grace come in many forms. Each of you has received a gift in order to serve others. You should use faith, it faithfully. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one speaking God's words. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. Then in all things, God will be praised through Jesus Christ. Glory and power belong to him forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning again. Great to have you here with us. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we as a church are looking at the letter of First Peter. And uh, Peter, as many of us know, was an apostle of Jesus. And when he writes, uh, and, and I guess if we think about his discipleship and his apostleship, he's, he's kind of got a mixed card or a mixed bag of experiences. Um, I think really what Peter, where Peter really excels though, is, uh, is as, as an apostle um, and really as a, as a father of the church. And he writes this letter as an older man and he writes to encourage Christians who are suffering persecution and have been exiled because of their faith. And I've been thinking a lot about Peter a little bit like a, a seasoned coach um, who, who is writing to his team uh, and they're, they're in the thick of it. And they're well and truly into the game, but they're up against it. And they're facing persecution and things are difficult. And it's really important at this stage in the game that the coach brings some inspiration. Uh, that the coach draws deep down on examples of great players that have gone before them that they can get inspiration from. And what the coach is going to do is he's going to remind his team of who they are. He's going to remind them of where they've come from to get to where they are. And so Peter has done this. 
Uh, He's reminded the followers of Jesus that they are children of God, that they've been bought with a price, that they've been set apart, they've been brought out of darkness into God's glorious light. And I think about Peter, a little bit like Kevin Sheedy, who was the coach of the Essendon Football Club and was recently inducted into the AFL Hall of Fame. Uh, And I think about Peter as just this incredible incredible champion who has just been in the game and uh, and excelled in the game and speaks with such passion and such authority and uh, we just see that here and and so as we look at Peter today I want us to have that image of a coach a coach who's done significant time as a player which Peter had done but now speaks as someone who has been in this kind of coaching or pastoral role for many years. Sheedy was the, the coach of Essendon for 27 years, a significant period of time. Saw four championships, which is awesome. But this isn't about football or Kevin Sheedy. It's just an illustration, but it's one that I hope works as we look at what Peter is saying. And as we consider these words of Peter, we consider them um, as we would l- listen as one who is being coached, if you like. Uh, today's message, kind of, it's really it's helpful to think of it in two parts. So the first six verses are primarily about looking back with a strong sense of warning. And the second part from verse 7 to 11 is very much about looking forward with a strong encouragement to press on. So we think about this kind of, these 11 verses in those two parts, it helps us understand where, where Coach Peter, if you like, is coming from. So let's just make, let's see how we can make some sense of this as we walk through. So 1 Peter 4, 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, a good coach knows how to inspire his or her team. And one of the things that they will do is they will draw on illustrations or examples of past or previous players who have absolutely excelled and remind those players that you're part of this same team. You are now wearing the Guernsey, if you will. And that fills them with motivation. And so Peter draws yet again on the example of Christ when it comes to suffering for doing good. And he says you ought to have the same mind, the same attitude as Christ Jesus, much like Paul uh, urges the Philippians in chapter 2 to have the same mind, the same attitude as Christ, that to humble themselves as Christ humbled himself. They're to serve others as Christ served others. And they're to obey God as Christ obeyed God. And uh, Peter uses this military language uh, around arming yourself. And, and, and what he means by that is, and acknowledges, that this is, there is a, a spiritual battle going on. There is spiritual warfare taking place. And there are certain weapons that are required in order to fight well in this battle. And we're going to see the weapons that Peter will draw on a little bit later in the second part of the message is around prayer, around loving one another, around serving, and uh, so that God receives all of the glory. So having the mind of Christ there, humility of self, service towards others, and obedience towards God is kind of the hallmark, of, if you like, of what it means to have the mind 
of Christ. I love uh, how the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 urges believers to have the mind of Christ and he refers to Christ as the author and perfecter of their faith. And I love that. You know, our faith is authored. It, is, it, it originates, it orientates. Its genesis is found in the person of Christ and he is the perfecter of our faith. So it starts with Christ and it is perfected in Christ. Every single person in this room today is on a journey. There's a continuum of faith. You might be all the way over here. I don't even know if any of this stuff is real. I'm just here today because someone brought me along. You might be over here. Maybe God exists, but you know, he is just so remote from where I am. There might be a seed of faith in you. Maybe you're new on your journey of faith in Christ and you're growing. Maybe you're all the way over here. You're a seasoned believer. You're a Kevin Sheedy of the faith, much like Peter. You've been in this game for a long time. You love the Lord. You're passionately serving him with everything you've got. You've committed yourself. But wherever you are at on your journey to faith... There's still a way to go. We've never arrived. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It originates with him and it continues with him until the day we see him face to face. The author and the perfecter of our faith. And as a coach, Peter is saying to his players, you've got to keep your mind fixed on Christ. you just got to pursue Christ. And, and, and throughout his letter, he continues to draw on the example and illustration of Christ because he knows that if believers are fixated on Christ, they're going to stay on that straight and narrow path. They're going to stay faithful to the end. <clears throat> Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. What does this particular saying or phrase here mean? It could mean one of two things. Both of them are true. And the first meaning could be that these believers that Peter is addressing have and continue to experience significant persecution and suffering because of their faith. And perhaps what Peter is intending with this phrase is, whoever suffers in the body, so physically speaking, whoever suffers for their faith has clearly given away the old life. They have put their faith in Christ. They have decided that they will stand resolute in following him, come what may. And therefore, that decision to follow Christ is being enacted out day by day. And in a sense, they have done away with their old life, with their sin, and their follow of Christ. The second thing that it could mean is this notion of our sin, in fact, died with Christ. And if our faith is in him, if we have identified ourselves as followers of Jesus, and as we saw last week, entered into the waters of baptism, and in that sense, identified with Christ, then our sin also is done with, and as Peter says in 3.18, the righteous for the unrighteous, that kind of exchange has taken place, and the believer therefore has complete victory over sin because their faith rests in Christ, the perfect saviour. Let's keep moving, 1 Peter 4.2. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of of God. You know, these believers who are in the game, they've put their faith in Christ and they're being persecuted. They're not hiding. They're not ashamed of the fact that they have that faith. And they've chosen to get off the sidelines and get in amongst it. Where do you find yourself 
today as a believer? Are you on the sidelines or are you in the game? Are you a player? And if you are a player, the chances are you're experiencing challenges for being a believer. If your faith is authentic and genuine, it is guaranteed that in this world there'll be trial and tribulation and suffering. But Jesus has overcome all of that so we can have faith. But Peter is, I guess, particularly saying that if you are on the sideline, jump off. Because you are faced with this decision when you're on the sideline. You're faced with a decision between my own human desires and the will of God. And those who pursue the will of God are going to face persecution. If you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. In a sense, Peter here is really looking into the rearview mirror. Now, he assumes uh, there's an acknowledgement that those to whom he is writing had a prior life. And they engaged essentially in the um, extreme abuse of sexual activity, of, um, of uh, abuse of alcohol, and these kind of wild, licentious parties. And it, it really is what he's referring to here is a, a reckless way of life that is all about immediate self-pleasure. It's all about kind of me, and it's all about just now. Um, three of those words relate to sexual sins. Two relate to uh, alcohol-related sins. It's just, and it's about extreme abuse, of those things. But it's interesting that he mentions detestable idolatry because uh, the context there is the, is the temple of worship. And those types of sexual practices and drunken practices occurred in that context. And all of it is so entirely dishonoring to the holiness of God, to the existence of God. It's all about self-pleasure and fulfillment in that sense and wild living. And Peter doesn't shame them for that. He doesn't embarrass them or shame them. He just simply says, you know, you you had that in your past. You tasted what that kind of reckless, selfish living was like. And you've now tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Leave that life behind. You no longer need it. Now, why does Peter even raise this here? Because the people to whom he is writing are faced with incredible pressure and stress. They are faced with incredible pressure and stress. What do we as human beings tend to do when we are faced with incredible pressure and stress? Our tendency is to go back to those addictions, those things that make us feel good in the short, immediate term. And and, and Peter uses some illustrations that his readers could identify with because they they were part of that scene once upon a time. But for each of us here this morning, there might be different vices that we once engaged with and find ourselves, when we are under pressure and under stress, drifting back towards to kind of solve the problem or to help numb the, the pain or the you know, stress that we find ourselves under. I'm sure that in our own way, we can all relate to that. I love the fact that Peter is not shaming them for this. He's just reminding them that was your old life. You walked away from it. You made a decision to trust in Christ and to follow him. So keep resolute, stand firm, 
because you've made a good decision and you want to keep moving forward. Now, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay on either end of the spectrum. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you, formal life. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So for those followers who Peter is writing to, who've made the decision to put their faith in Christ and follow him, there's a cost. There's a cost. They are suffering abuse from that old life, from those friends that they used to hang out with who kind of had those types of values. Now, let me just say as a clause here, there are times when it is actually necessary and appropriate to walk away from people if their behaviour and their lifestyle and, and their influence over us is so much so that it, it, it enables, it prevents us from pursuing Christ. There are other times when we need to stay and be a witness and an influence to them. But whatever the situation might be, there's a different value now at play. And if you choose a different value, if you choose to move in a different direction, then that's going to be hard and there will be a price to pay. But, but what Peter wants to say to his readers is there's a price to pay either way. Like if you don't make the choice to follow Christ, if you continue to live and engage in this kind of wild, selfish, self-pleasure start lifestyle, then the price will come on the day of judgment when you stand before God and have to give an account. And he wants to remind his readers that. Who do you want? Do you want to stand before God, before the judgment throne of a holy God, not having given your heart to him? Or do you want to stand before the, the judgment throne of a holy God, knowing that you have given your heart to him? Can you see how Peter is actually encouraging his readers with the decision they've made? That yes, you will face judgment, but you won't be judged because the author and the perfecter of your faith is going to stand in your shoes and God will see the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. It's awesome. That is available to all who put their faith in Christ. 1 Peter 4, 6, For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This could seem a little bit difficult, but it's not as tricky as it sounds. In a sense, what Peter is saying is not even the dead can escape final judgment. As we've, as we've spoken about in previous weeks, and it's not really spoken about a lot in today's Christian culture or climate, but there is a day of judgment coming. There is a holy God, and all will stand before him and have to give an account. The dead and the living. All will be gathered up. Not a second chance. And it's also, we don't read Hebrews 4, 6 as potentially, because it can be read, it can be interpreted to sound a little bit like maybe there's a second chance after death where people could repent. But we read, and as I mentioned last week, we've got to allow Scripture to illuminate Scripture. So in Hebrews 9, 27, it says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment... So we know that that would not be the meaning behind this verse. Really, I think those who are now dead refers to Christians to whom the gospel was preached when they were alive, 
but they are now since dead. And in fact, that may not mean a lot to you and I, but to Peter's readership, they may have had friends, even family members, who were persecuted to the point of death for their faith. And so these words mean an incredible lot to the original readers who Peter is writing to. Okay, we're now kind of in the second part of 4, 1 to 11. Peter's been looking back with a tone of warning. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? But he's now going to point them forward with a tone of great encouragement to keep on going. You can do this. I don't know how those cyclists ride for 200 kilometres and still have energy in the tank to sprint in those last couple of kilometres. You can tell what I was doing late last night, can't you? But there's that sense there. Peter wants them focused on the finish line. You've got the Holy Spirit within you. You can do this. You can sprint to the finish line. You've got to stay focused. You've got to stay fit and healthy and fixated on the goal. And that's what Peter the coach continues to point his readers towards the author and perfecter of your faith. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now, yes, it is absolutely true that the early church lived with um, a heightened sense of the imminent return of Christ. Like, quite literally, the early church believed that Christ would return in their lifetime. In their lifetime. And this absolutely shaped their faith and the way they lived their faith. Like, if you knew, and no one knows this, but if you knew that Christ was to return in two weeks or two years' time, it would totally, I'm sure, change the way you live your faith. It would stop being a mediocre faith if it was one. It would become a passionate, full-on faith, no bars hold, wouldn't it? Uh, And so Peter wants to urge, he wants to actually, in a sense, um, fan that flame. Like the end is near. And, And what is true, none of us know when Christ will return. But what we do know is that with every single passing day, we actually edge a day closer to the day Christ does return. So in some respects, the day is near and it draws nearer with every passing day. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now, there were a lot of prophecies going around at that time as there have been in previous years around Christ is going to return at this particular time, on this particular date, in this particular place. And what happens with that is, unfortunately, people can get so fixated on the prophecies that their minds are no longer fully focused on Christ, the author and perfecter of their salvation, and what it is to actually be in the game and to stay true, uh, to persevere to the end. And that's why Peter says, I want you sober-minded. I don't want your mind kind of fixated on all of these potential prophecies about the certain day or time or signs. I want your minds fully fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. I want you to be in prayer for yourself, that you would stay true to Christ and the decision that you've made, that you wouldn't go back to your past ways. I want you to be in prayer for your brothers and sisters, that that might be the same for them. I want you to be in prayer for those who have not yet chosen to put their faith in Christ, that you might have the opportunity to share the hope that is within you. I want you focused and I want you on your knees in prayer 
We have to pray with our eyes on God, not on the difficulties, says Oswald Chambers. You know, often when we come to prayer, we're drawn to prayer because of the difficulties. So much difficult stuff going on in my life right now. And often that is what brings us to prayer. But what Peter's saying, I just want you fixed your eyes on God in all situations. Take your eyes. And that's what prayer does. It's amazing. When we actually set aside that time and be diligent and make the effort to pray, all of those difficulties kind of get gobbled up in the glory and the greatness of God as we say, God, can you just take this? I can't carry it. And he does. And he eases our burden. And what prayer does is it orientates our hearts towards the author and the perfecter of our faith. Keep your eyes on him. And that's what prayer does for us. On Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This word deeply uh, is, is like in a coaching way. It's like dig deep. You got to dig deep. It gets hard. Now, this is not new. Remember, this is a letter. This is a letter. Uh, we are dissecting that letter week by week. But any letter is supposed to be written in its entirety, right? And, and, and originally, when it was read out, the believers would have heard the entire letter. And multiple times, Peter has stressed the primacy of love amongst the fellowship of believers. And he does it here again. And he does it here again because it gets hard. It gets hard to love others in the family of God. And, um, and, 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 and that may have looked a little different to us as to what it did for the believers in Peter's time. We'll come to that in just a moment when we talk about hospitality. This word about uh, this sentiment about covering over a multitude of sins, Peter's not condoning sin. It's not like, well, you can do all the sin you like and just love one another and that kind of covers it all over. No. What he's actually meaning by this is a community of people who are so deeply and authentically committed and devoted to loving one another is going to cultivate an environment where forgiving one another for grievances done is going to come a lot easier and a lot more natural. A church community where people genuinely work hard at loving one another is a community where forgiveness will flourish. Because that community can only love with the love of Christ. And the love of Christ comes to each one of us through forgiveness first and foremost. And so as we experience that forgiveness, we then become enabled to offer and extend that forgiveness to others. Dig deep, Peter says. I want you to pray and I want you to dig deep in your love for one another. Now, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, hospitality to Peter's audience meant having guests, strangers, on many occasions, come and live with you. So remember how these people are exiles? They've fled persecution. They're, in a sense, refugees. Well, there might be someone knocking on your door who's a fellow believer who you don't know from a bar of soap. They are your brother or sister in Christ. What Peter wants to do here is, and hospitality back then meant literally having the, the person stay with you, with your family. It's not just a meal on a Saturday night and then see you later. It's, it's you know, come into our home. Um, 
eat from our table, live with my family. It's that kind of hospitality. Now, it makes sense that some of them were grumbling about that because that, that's really costly. I mean, I find even having my own parents live with us for a couple of nights costly. It's, uh, I love my parents and, and Bron's parents, but I'm a person of routine and we already have three busy boys and, and you just know, just adding extra people to the, whole, to the household and the family, it just adds extra work and potentially extra stress. Um, it's just normal human life. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, I get that. I can understand why they were feeling a little bit like that. Because, I mean, it's one thing to have your family. It's another thing to have total strangers who might have totally different ways of doing things. Um, of course, their faith is in common, but let's just be real here. People are people and people are different and that can cause friction and tension. But what Peter is saying is here is actually how you can really dig and love. Like, is this not an incredible expression of God's love to us? God has been so hospitable to us. He's welcomed us into his family, adopted us as his children with all of our baggage. And so Peter's saying, guys, we need to mirror that kind of love. We need to welcome people in and show them hospitality, especially when they're either visiting um, they might be travelling preachers of the gospel or they might be those who are persecuted and have had to fled a difficult situation. Welcome them into your own home. Now, look, we are in a different time and a different age. So hospitality is, of course, going to look different to that. It might mean what it meant for the believers of Peter's time. But I think also it, it's very much about extending the warmth and the love of God to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as an expression and a demonstration of what God has done for us. And it builds unity. It breaks down barriers. Something very powerful about welcoming and inviting people into your home, into your world. All of a sudden, this kind of arm's length relationship just gets cut off. You come into my home, you live and observe me in family life, you get to know the real me. If you never come into my space, if I never go into your space, then our relationship with one another is its kind of at arm's length. We know each other only in one particular context. Uh, the type of relationship that Peter wants believers to foster. Is anyone kind of put out by that? People okay? No, no one's wearing glasses yet? That's okay. Um, it's uh, the kind of relationship that Peter wants believers to foster with one another is very much, you need to come into my world and I need to come into yours so that we can just be real. Um, and, and so that we can see, hey, this is a normal person. They've got struggles and challenges just like I do. And we stop putting one another on these pedestals and just go, oh, we're all normal people. Like, life is hard. I'm flawed. Um, I need God's grace just as much as the next person. And we all kind of go, oh, I can really love this person. It really actually helps us to love one another when we're more real with one another. So it just keeps... Um, persisting about authenticity and, and genuine love. And then finally, I love how Trevor connected this in his comments in the Weekly Views. Peter really came into his own at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers. 
And Peter draws on that experience, no doubt, to talk to them about their gifts. And a little bit like a coach addresses his team and every player on the team has a different role and function to play on the team. And it's like we need every single person firing. We need every single person engaged and involved in this game, in this team, for the team to flourish at its fullest potential. And Peter is saying there are gifts in the body that have been poured out by the Holy Spirit and everyone needs to use those gifts. Every single person has received a gift, has a goal or a role to play. Peter validates these believers by reminding them that, and I loved it how Trevor began our service last Sunday by doing exactly that. You might be a toe or a foot or a hand or an ear or an eye or I I don't know what part of the body you are, but according to Scripture, you're a part of the body. And we need you to play your role so that the body as a collective can function healthily. There are lots of bodies out there, lots of churches, only one universal body of Christ, of course. But if we think about the church as a if we think of the um, local church as a whole body, how many unhealthy churches are there? It's because people aren't playing their roles. You know, a body trying to function without a heart or a leg, or it's only going to get so far. So the body needs to be activated to be healthy and to grow. And, and this is not just hypothetical. It gets really practical. Um, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God might be praised through through Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter kind of breaks the gifts, if you will, into speaking and serving gifts. Now, if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 uh, or Ephesians 4, there are kind of lists of all of like different categories of different gifts. Peter just summarizes them as the speaking and the serving gifts. The speaking gifts would include prophecy, uh, encouragement, um, preaching, teaching, uh, evangelism. Um, And he says, if you're someone who has one of the the gift of speaking the words, you might be a little bit like in in a team, you're on the field. You are on the field. You're in a more visible role. You've got a huge responsibility because you've got to speak as if God himself is speaking. You've got to be focused. You've got to be prayerful. You've got to make sure that the words you speak reflect the heart of God. You've got to be so familiar with the Scriptures and have an incredible humility about you as you speak those words. It's not to be done with any sense of flippancy or disregard for the holiness of God. Speak as one who speaks the very words of God. Uh, If you have a serving gift, and that kind of covers such a wide range of, we might say, support-type gifts, support gifts in all kinds of ways. Would it be caring for others, the practical ministry of pastoral care? It might be leading people in worship musically, Uh, It might be serving meals to the poor. It's a huge kind of list, if you will, as you look at those serving gifts. But if you think about a team, you might have this visible team on the field, but there's a a huge support and coaching staff that sits behind that team, and they all have to work together. They're all really important. And Peter doesn't say one is more important than the other. It's like whatever gift God has given you, you've got to use it well to his glory. Now, we know 
full well. For those of us who are in some sort of serving area in ministry and in church, it is hard. And there are times when we don't want to do it because we're human and we're real and we're normal people. And if we're rostered on several times in a row or if there are certain things that come at a cost, there are times when that just gets difficult. Peter wants to remind his readers that if you're to serve, remember that God provides you with the strength to do that. And when you're struggling, you're probably just trying to tag into your own resources. And it's, we need to be reminded that, God, I serve you not with my own resource, but with the resource that you give. The, um, <laughs> and this gets really practical here. Like, we can talk about this theoretically, but right now, as a church community, we're actually really in need of people to serve. Um, I mentioned earlier in my prayer, we're, we're coming into a season, time of the year, where a lot of people go away for holidays, which is fabulous, and that's wonderful. That puts a lot of pressure on those who are here. And if you look around the room, we don't have a huge pool of people to pull from to do all of the different things that need doing to serve the body of Christ. And so I just want you, in the context of this morning's message and the idea that God pours his gifts out upon the church um, to say, we need your help. Now, I don't want to say, I don't want to suggest that Christian ministry and service and speaking and service is kind of limited and restricted to the church. The last thing I want to say, because I think it's much broader than that. But it's really important how we serve the body of Christ. And so there are significant gaps at the moment in serving communion and collecting the offering and just kind of being here early and opening up and ensuring that every, everything's set up with Judy, welcoming, morning, just super, super practical stuff. It's actually not very time-consuming. What it requires is a, a willingness and just a servant's heart to be available. Um, we really also are in desperate need of help with our children's and youth ministries. Um, and you might feel as though you are so uh, far from that. But what we just need are people who have hearts for God, a desire to serve, and in those particular areas, a love of children. I know many of you have grandchildren that you love dearly, children of your own that you love dearly. And we would just love, Lisa or I, would just love if you could say, hey, is there any way I could help? Um, I love the other day, Thea put her hand up and said, I'll help out with children's ministry. Like she sees a need and just, and I just thought, that's awesome. And that's what we need in this church. We need, we have a very shallow pool of people in their 20s and, and, and people in their 30s and 40s are so flat stick with kids themselves and doing all that they can. We just have a shortage in this church. So, you know, sometimes our children's and youth uh, leaders are not going to look like the ideal 20-year-old just because we don't have them at the moment. We've got Ash and that's it. Uh, I, I mean, she is like, she is out here flying the 20 flag, like, you know, really well. Um, but uh, there aren't too many others among us. And so as a church, we just got to step up. We got to dig deep. We got to work together as the body. And as we do, the body gets healthier and grows. <laughs> uh, so as we actually step up and, and, and promote a healthy body, God will grow. God will add number to this church. I have no doubt about that. Now, the, the, the function of gifts 
is to serve the body. So whether you have a speaking gift or a serving gift, the function of those is to serve the body. The purpose is to glorify God. The goal of all ministry is to bring glory to God. And so while he is on that note, Peter closes with a doxology. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Keep focused on the goal, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Keep looking forward. Forget what was behind. Keep going, my friends. That's 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11. We had fun with that this morning, didn't we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for Peter. Uh, We want to thank you for this man's uh, enthusiasm and passion for you and the way that he just wants to spur believers on to keep their eyes and their hearts fixed on you and to live the life that you call them to live. Sometimes that life is hard and it comes at a cost. But thank you that your Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us to empower and enable us to be your body, to be your hands and feet, your mouthpiece, all so that God may be glorified through Christ our Lord and Saviour. Keep us focused and fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.